It reminded me of a, of a man that I heard of recently who was driving down the street. And as he was driving down the road, he, he, he began to see a long line of people walking down the center of the road. And he was trying to drive by him, and he started to count them. And he started, he got up to 100, he got up to 200, he got up to 300. And they were walking down the center line of the road. And up ahead, he saw that they were coming to a standstill, and he couldn't figure out what was going on, so he kind of pulled off to the side of the road, and he saw a limousine, and in front of the limousine were two hearse, one after another. And he pulled over, and he couldn't figure out what was going on, and the limousine had a flat tire, and the driver was out changing the flat, so he walked over, and he knocked on the back window, and the window rolled down, and the guy that was inside there, he said, excuse me, sir, I've never seen anything like this before. What kind of funeral is this? What happened? He said, well, you see that first hearse? And that first hearse is my wife. He said, you see this dog sitting here next to me? This dog killed her. He goes, oh, man, I'm really sorry to hear that. He said, well, who's in the second hearse? He said, in the second hearse is my mother-in-law. And you see this dog sitting next to me? This dog killed her, too. He went, oh, man. He goes, I'm really sorry. And he started to walk away. And then he began to think about what he had just heard. And he walked back over again and he said, uh, excuse me, uh, would you mind if I borrowed your dog sometime? <laughs> and the guy stopped and he said, well, get in the back of the line. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't, help but get, you can't help but get sentimental, you know what I mean, on Mother's Day and thinking about mothers-in-law. Yes, indeed. Hey, now, be honest with me. Do you think you'll hear a story like that today? No, there's no way. Everybody goes to the mushy side. Let's just go to reality land. Okay, just kidding. Let's get on with business or I'm in big trouble. Last week, we were looking at the five qualities of a boss. The five qualities of a boss as told to us in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And it came to us uh, through a man who was a boss. His name is Solomon. And it was incredible, the observations that Solomon uh, made as far as being a leader. If you understand anything about Solomon at all, you realize that as king of Israel, he was also chief commander. He was also CEO of Solomon Enterprises. Not too many people realize that. He had an import-export business. He had a lot of other side ventures that he had going on. And so he came up with a list of five qualities in a good boss. And we took a look at those in the last couple of weeks and we went into detail. But just as a reminder, he said that there are five things that a good boss possesses. The first thing is, a good boss possesses a clear mind. Now, you've got to understand, too, as a leader, anybody who's any type of supervision position, Solomon at one point had 3,300. Now, I'm in construction, and this just it boggles my mind to think about this for a minute. But anybody who's in con construction, can you conceive of having 3,300 superintendents that report to you? And underneath him, he had hundreds of thousands of employees that indirectly reported through his middle management. He had 3,300 middle management positions that came to him and reported to him on a regular basis. It was incredible what he saw and what he learned through discernment as far as what is good and what is bad about leadership. And the first thing he saw was that you have to have a clear mind. You better know why you're doing what you're doing because the people who are working for you don't know why they're doing what they're doing unless you tell them why they're doing it. And then if they have a good understanding of why, then they'll do it and they'll be happy to do it. But the problem is there's nothing worse than working for a boss who doesn't know why he's doing what he's doing and doesn't know how to tell you why you're supposed to be doing what you're doing. So he said a clear mind. And then he also said you have to have a cheerful disposition. There's nothing worse than working for a person who's a prune face, who are, they're so uptight that when they blink, they squeak. I mean, you know, it's just it gets old after a while. And you want to see somebody who is excited about what they're doing, 
can convey that excitement to you, be happy about what's going on, and also it's infectious, you know? I mean, it's like, hey, man, this guy's excited, and I'm excited, and I'm not even sure why I'm excited, but he's excited. I'm going to do whatever he tells me to do because he knows something I don't know. That's why he's the boss. And then you go and do it. And the third thing was a cautious mouth. We saw that Solomon warned about promising things to employees that we didn't follow through on. There is nothing. You know what's amazing? What I found in my own experience, and it seems to be true, you can almost put up with a boss who doesn't really know where they're going. And you all can put up with a boss who doesn't give you a lot of attaboys and doesn't give you a lot of the strokes that you need and doesn't tell you what a good job you're doing. You can almost put up with those too. But, but nothing will kill morale quicker than a boss who just tells you something and doesn't follow through with it. So you put up with one and two, you can almost grin and bear it. But number three, I don't know anybody who can put up with number three. I don't know anybody who says, hey, the guy tells me one thing, he does something else, it doesn't really bother me. <laughs> yes, it does. Bothers you a lot. And the more you think about it, the more you begin to rationalize and justify why you can do whatever it is you want to do because he lies to you all the time, so you might as well lie back to him or her. Do whatever you want to do. See, Solomon said, hey, you want to be a good boss? And you better tell people the way it is. If they don't like the way it is, they don't like the way it is. But never, never lie to them to just get them to get off your back. Just tell it the way it is. And you know what's amazing? They'll respect you for that because they know you know something they don't know because you're in a position of leadership. You see direction. You see vision. You see where you need to go. And you see that you're not going to be able to go that way if everybody else gets their own way. So if you're just up front and you lay it out, they go, hey, you know what? All right. At least the guy's telling me the way it is. Maybe I don't like what I hear. Fourth is concise judgment. Think about what's being said. Check into the facts. Don't jump to conclusions. And then make a decision based on that. Nothing will get us into trouble quicker than acting on something without checking into all the facts. Check it out. And the last thing is a controlled spirit, which he says is a, is a humble spirit, a person of humility. And I want to get kind of sidetracked because this is an area that you hear so many people talk about, especially like in churchy Christian type circles, you know, you really need to be humble. You know, and you hear people talk about it all the time, and it's a character trait that is over-discussed and under-taught and, and not understood. What does it mean to be humble as a leader? And so as we take a look at it, I like what one man said, John Ruskin said this, said, I believe that the first test of a truly great man is his humility. Is his humility. And the problem is, not many of us know what humility is all about. You got your Bibles with you? Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Sitting with somebody who doesn't have one, share with them so they know that we're not making this up as we go along. And if you can't find it, help somebody. Mark chapter 10. See, most of us believe, as the disciples did in this particular case, what the mark of a great leader was. And I think if we would ask one another what we thought the mark of a great leader was, this would rarely come up. Rarely. If at all. And in Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 35, here were two guys that were, if you want to put it in a, a vernacular business sense, here were two guys that were working for Jesus. Jesus was the boss and these two guys worked for him. And they thought they'd come up to him one day and ask, you know, if uh, there was any room in the program for a promotion. After all, they've been pretty good. They've been good employees. They've been showing up on time. They haven't been showing up drunk. They haven't been late, you know, and they've been passing the drug tests. So they figured they were in 
and some type of uh, room for promotion there. And so James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, if you're in a leadership position, that doesn't sound too uncommon, does it? Hey, uh, boss, uh, we just thought we'd ask you to do whatever we want. Oh, okay, no problem. What would you like? So he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? He says, and they said to him, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking for. There's a clear-minded leader. You don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drank or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. But to sit on my right or sit on my left, this is not mine to give, but it, has been, it, but it, has, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, interesting. Now, if Jesus was just like any other boss or leader that you ever come in contact with and somebody said, hey, I'd like uh, to be promoted to vice president and I'd like to be vice president of marketing and maybe we can make my brother vice pre president of operations. Now, if Jesus was like a lot of the bosses that you've probably run in contact with, he would have probably said something like, you know what? That's not a bad idea. Let me think about it. I'll bring it up at the next board meeting. I'll get back to you. But immediately he understood that those two positions weren't open for them. And there was no sense in stroking them along and telling them that maybe it was if they jumped through enough hoops and if they did enough tricks, then maybe they'd get that position. He didn't hesitate. He just said, hey, you know what? <laughs> That's not for you. Hey, you're, you're, you're great guys, great employees. Love having you around. You're really fitting the program. You're fitting in nice. I mean, th there's a lot of room in this program for you, but those two positions aren't for you. They're not available. Oh, okay. See, and then he began to prepare it, and he said in verse 41, he says, you know what? After hearing this, the ten, the other ten that were with him, began to feel indignant with James and John. They were ticked off. Typical business situation. You got one person who's bold enough to go into the boss and ask for a raise, and you get upset because you didn't have enough boldness to go ask for the same thing. And then when they get what they get, or they don't get what they get, then you get upset because, hey, you know what? Who do they think they are asking for the vice presidency? I've been here 15 years. He's only been around for two. He's going in asking me vice president of marketing. He's got to be an idiot. So they got upset. And that's exactly what happened here. So Jesus, call, calling unto himself, Jesus said this, You know that those who are recognized as leaders or rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Hey, the answer to being a leader in our society is power, position, and privilege. Power, position, and privilege. That's the answer in our society to being a great leader. Exercise that authority. Tell them what to do. Tell them when to do. Tell them where to go. And the privilege of, hey, I don't have to do that anymore because now I'm in this position. And, hey, I can play golf on the weekdays while my guys are out working or doing whatever they need to be doing. Because of the privilege of my position, I can do that. But see, Jesus got a whole different idea about what it means to be a leader. You know what he said? But strong contrast to the, the viewpoint of the world in which we live. So that's what people think leadership's all about, but I'm going to tell you something different, and you're not going to like it because it's not going to fit in with your plans on why you want to be a leader, but that's too bad. I'm going to tell you the way it is. said this, it's not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. said, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. You follow what he's saying? Hey, you want to be a great leader? Then you serve the people you think were created to serve you. Oh, and in case you got a problem with that, he said, uh, for even the Son of Man, even God himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
said, in case you have a problem with what I'm telling you, I'll just lay it out because this is the way it is, and I'm going to demonstrate the way it is by showing you through example that even I came to serve and to give. And that's the greatest example that I could lead. If you are in a leadership position, what Jesus Christ said is very plain and simple. He said, hey, you think power, position, privilege is the way it is to lead? I'm going to tell you right now, the way to lead people is to serve them through example. That's what he said. See, that's what John Ruskin hit it on the head. I believe the first test of a truly great man is humility. From God's perspective, it means that we're able to be willing to serve and to give to those whom God has entrusted to us. Now, just so we don't get caught up here, anyone who has influence over another person is in a position of authority. And since it's Mother's Day, we'll throw a little mother twist to it, and that is that anyone who's a parent has a responsibility of influencing their children, and they do it through leading them, not pushing them. See, it's fascinating to me, as all through Scripture, it teaches us that we are to lead by example, not to push. It's a lot easier to tell a kid, hey, follow me, watch the way I walk, watch my footsteps, listen to what I say, see the things I do, that's what I want you to do, than it is to say, hey, don't do as I do, but you do as I say. The conflicting message is there. It's like, hey, man, what's the problem here? I don't see it. I don't understand it. You've got to demonstrate it. And so it's a lot easier to have people following you than it is to push them out into battle to do it. Every great leader that this country has ever known, every great leader that the history has ever known, has been a general who has been out on the front lines. They haven't been hiding behind a desk. They haven't been making the moves on paper. They've been out there, and they've been in front, and they've been saying, follow me. We've got it all backwards because we don't want to be out there saying, follow me. We'd rather tell people what we think is the right thing to do and then do anything we want to do. We'd rather tell people to be there and work hard all day long so we can go out and play than be there and work hard all day long with them. We'd rather tell our kids, don't smoke, don't drink, don't do drugs, than to put the beer and throw it away and not be involved in any of it. We'd rather tell them, don't do this because you don't know how to handle it, but I'm responsible and I know how to drink and don't, you know, don't do that. You know what I'm saying? You hear what I'm saying? That's the whole problem, is that we all want what's best for other people as if somehow that's not best for us. Tremendous contradiction. And so as we go through this, we're going to take a look at humility in leadership. And one of the things that I want to make very clear is that we don't have a real good understanding on what humility is all about. We think somewhere along the line we've bought into that this is optional for us. Like this is an option. Like some people have the spiritual gift of humility. I, just, I thought I'd stop for a minute because people like to watch when people come and sit down late. It's an interesting phenomenon. I don't understand it at all. It's, you know, it's like they've never seen anyone walk up an aisle and sit down. It's like, oh, I like it. Very nice, very nice. Kind of adjusted herself there and sat down real properly. So they, they just do that. It's not, the, it's not you that I'm concerned about. It's the rest of you. Jeez. Anyway, here we go. Let's get something straight. Right off the bat, humility is commanded. Did you realize that? Humility is commanded? James says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourself. Meaning, guess what? It's something that you and I have the ability to do. You follow that? It's like volunteer. Humble yourself. Do it on your own. 
fascinating. You know why? Because if you don't do it on your own, God will do it for you. Isn't that great? Some of us haven't caught on to that yet. Haven't figured it out yet at all. He says, do it. Do it on your own. For the Lord, and He'll lift you up. You want to be exalted? Then humble yourself. You want a, you want a big time, you want a big time position? Then serve other people. See, then uh, Peter goes on. Now Peter's an interesting guy. I'll give you a little backdrop here. Because if you if you got your Bibles there, Mark, turn ahead to uh, Gospel of John. A couple books forward there. And look at chapter 13. I love this. Peter's a sharp guy. He picked up on this. Let me give you a little background here. Verse 4. This is a great story. You've got to understand the backdrop so you can really appreciate this text. This is great stuff. In John chapter 13, look at verse 4. It says, Jesus rose from supper, and he laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Okay, stop, stop, look, look for a minute. All of you, clothe yourself. Okay, go back. He girded himself. Same word. Same word. Girded himself. Okay. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which, which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. Peter, oh, look, Peter, the guy who wrote this, starting to pick up on some stuff here. He goes back here, remembers this incident. says, uh, Peter, he said to Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? You follow what Peter's saying? Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're going to wash my feet? Jesus answered and said, what I do you do not realize now, but... You shall realize it later on. Later on. Right here. Later on. He realized it later on. He comes back. He remembers this. And he remembers what Jesus said. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered and said, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, hey, not only my feet, but also my hands, my head. Let's go for it then. I mean, if that's all that's involved here is just getting, getting washed, hey, well then do it. You know, douse me, whatever. Throw me in the shower, whatever you want to do. Simon Peter said to him, do it. So in verse 10, Jesus said, hey, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew that one was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord, God of this universe, and the teacher, clear-minded, knows what's going on, knows the direction, knows the plan. If I wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. It says, for I gave an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. We are not greater than our creator. Neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. See what he's saying? Okay, this is the backdrop. Peter realized what Jesus was saying later on. Because he got hung up that, well, gee, if you wash me, then that means I'm a follower of yours. No, 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 that's not what I'm trying to get across to you, Peter, and you'll understand it someday. And he finally did. He said, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, that's all of us, he says, do this. Clothe yourself, same word, gird yourself with humility, prepare yourself with humility toward one another. Now, anytime you have something like that, you're going to say, well, why? Why should I do it? 
mean, why do I really need to do this? If I'm going to be a leader that people will follow, why should I do this? Why? Oh, I'm glad you asked it. Did you ask it? Go ahead, you can ask it. On three. One, two, three. Why? Because. That's, that's always the way it is. Why? Because. Because why? Because God opposes the proud. But gives grace to the humble. Why should you do it? Very simple. Because God opposes the proud. You know why God opposes the proud? Literally, it means opposes, means he's set in concrete. God will never change his viewpoint on pride, proud people. You know why? Because he's God. And proud people begin to believe that they're God. And there's only one God. God is one. There's only one God. So you know what he said? Hey, you know why you should clothe yourself with humility toward one another? Because I'm God. There's only one of me. I'm the boss. And you're not. And you know what's wonderful about it? I set against you. I'll take a stand against you the moment you start thinking that you're God in your own little kingdom. I don't care if it's in your house. I don't care if it's in a business. I don't care if it's in a community. I don't care if it's in a church. I don't care where it is. God says that I'm opposed to the proud. And I'm set against you like, like in concrete. And it's set and it ain't going to change. He said, but you know what the good news is? Not only will I oppose you if you're proud, but I'll give you grace and I'll bless you if you're humble. I will lift you up. When the world around you wants to put you down, I'll lift you up. Why? Because you know who's in charge. And when you get put where I want to put you, you know how to handle it. And it's not going to mess you up. So that's the backdrop. Humility is commanded by God to all of those who say they follow him and walk in his ways. Now the problem is, how do you define it? How do you define humility? That's a fun thing, because not many of us understand how to do it. And we're going to take a look at seven leaders who understood how to define humility. That's the best way to do it. Seven people God said are leaders in this book. These are the people that he used to help us define humility. You ready? Here's number one. Look how Abraham defined humility. It's in Genesis 18, 27 through 28. It says, And Abraham spoke up again, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? God had told Abraham he was going to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He was going to wipe it out. And Abraham started, at this point, the art of negotiation. And that's why his people have been so good at it ever since. Because they have seen how Abraham negotiated with God, and God spent some time at the bargaining table with them, and they figured, hey, he can do it, or we can do it. That's what he did. He said, hey, wait, oh, hey, uh, God, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You're going to destroy this city. Now, what if there were uh, 15 righteous people? Say, hey, if there's 15, I wouldn't destroy it. But I'm still going to destroy it. And so he started thinking, well, there must not be 15. Hey, uh, how about 10 if there's a 10? How about 10? If there's 10, would you destroy it? Hmm. Uh, yeah, if there's 10, I wouldn't, but I'm still going to destroy it. Who? Okay, I'm running out of room here on the bargaining table. So he dropped it down to five. And he began to no negotiate with God, said, Okay, God, if there's five, would you still destroy it? And so Abraham began to negotiate with God 
But you know what Abraham saw about himself? This is how he defined humility. As an accurate appraisal of yourself before God. You see that? You see what he said? Hey, let me tell you something. He goes, though I am, I am nothing but dust and ashes. That's me. I'm nothing but dust and ashes. I'll tell you what, if there was a guy who had bragging rights, Abraham did. Abraham, you know what the Bible says about Abraham? Abraham was God's friend. He was a friend of God. I know people who go around bragging because of people they know and who they spent the weekend with and what they did and who they're going to dinner with as if somehow that made them special. Yeah, Joe, so-and-so and I spent the weekend together. Oh, really? So what? That's, you know, that's what you feel like saying. It's like a big stinking deal. So what? He said, let me tell you something. Abraham was a friend of God. Abraham was a wealthy man. Oh, I've got, did you see my new watch? Where this guy comes every week with his watches and stuff. And he shows me watches that he makes for people. It's a crack up. So is it, I mean, it's like, oh, look at this one, 18,000 bucks. Now, he's in the business. I'm not going to tell you who he is because th this is a great quote. He said afterwards, he goes, can you believe somebody's stupid enough to pay $18,000 for this watch? <laughs> but it's like, oh, you know, it's like, oh, yes, yeah, so I drove over here in my new shiny whatever. And then I, oh, look at me, let me check my Rolex to see what time it is. And, and uh, oh, well, you know what, let me check my stock portfolio and let me start checking my real estate holdings. And, ooh, 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 ooh. and you just go, oh, I'm so impressed. And then you just want to say, but you know what? You're nothing but dust and ashes. Yes! <laughs> That's what you are. Nothing but dust and ashes. I mean, and, and what's it going to take to understand that who we are before God? We are dust and ashes. I don't care what you're dropping, what you're wearing. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care who you are and what business you're in. I don't care how many of you just bought and sold and bought and sold and trade people, bought and sold. I buy and sell. I don't care what you do. You're dust and ashes. What's it going to take for us to get a handle on that? Abraham's a friend of God. Abraham was a wealthy man. Abraham negotiated with God and lived to talk about it. Huh? I mean, because you're all sitting there going, well, I, I negotiate with God all the time. I just try to cut him a deal yesterday. If I win the lottery, I'll cut him in for 15%. <laughs> oh, wow, you're pretty good. You know, he said, hey, man. Abraham said, I am dust and ashes, baby. I know that's all I am. And it's an accurate appraisal of who we are before God. Let me read a great story. This is great. I don't know what it's going to take sometimes. A lot of us aren't real quick, so maybe this will help you figure it out. Here's a guy who wrote an article in Sport Magazine. He wrote it. He spent a day with Muhammad Ali. I love this story. He, he spent the day with him. He watched videos with him. They went and grabbed something to eat together. He was just excited because Muhammad Ali was kind of like um, his hero when he was growing up. So the sport writer, the sports writer spent a day with him. And it was great. And here's his conclusion. He said this. They were sitting down there watching some videotapes of old Ali fights. And he said, with the volume turned this low on the TV, you could hear the videotape steady whir. And the guy asked him, he said, can I ask you a serious question? He nodded, okay. He said, you're still a great man, champ. I see that, but a lot of people think your mind is fried. Does that bother you? Didn't hesitate before he answered. No, there are ignorant people everywhere, he said. Even educated people can be ignorant. So does it, does it bother you that you're a great man who's not allowed to be great? He said, what, what, what do you mean, not allowed to be great? I mean, well, let me think about what I mean. I mean, the things that you seem to care most about, the things you really enjoy doing, the things the rest of us think of as being Muhammad Ali, those are exactly the things that have been taken from you. It just doesn't seem fair. Ali said, you don't question God. I said, well, okay, I respect that, but, oh, uh, man, I, I mean, I don't have any business talking to you like this. I shouldn't even be asking these questions. He said, no, go ahead, ask me. He said, it just bothers me, I told him. I was thinking about the obvious ironies, thinking about Ali continuing to invent and be invented by his own late 20th century mythology. 
about how he used to talk more easily, maybe better than anybody in the world, how he often still thinks with speed and dazzle, but it takes serious effort for him to communicate, even with the people closest to him, about how he may have been the world's greatest athlete when just walking, when just walking, he used to have the grace of, of a car turning corners. Now at night, he stumbles around the house. About how it's his left hand, the most visible source of his boxing greatness, the hand that won 150 fights. It's his left hand, not his right, that shakes almost continuously. And I was thinking how his major source of pride, his prettiness, remains more or less intact. If he lost 30 pounds, he would still look classically Greek. Despite not expecting to encounter the miraculous, Despite, now listen to this, despite not expecting to encounter the miraculous more than any other agnostic, I'm sort of spooked by the seeming precision with which these things have been excised from Ali's life. I know why this happened, Ali said. God is showing me and showing you. And he pointed his shaking index finger at me and widened his eyes that I am just a man just like everybody else. that I am just dust and ashes, just like everybody else. See, this is how Abraham defined it. You're in a leadership position, and you're thinking a little bit too highly of yourself, then let me just bring you back to earth for a second, because that's where you're going to be anyway, and that's you're just dust and ashes. I don't know. Sometimes I don't know who we think we are, and it's really fascinating, but the bottom line of what all Solomon's been trying to teach us is there is no man who has control over his future. There is no one sitting here who knows if they're going to be alive in the next 30 seconds. None of us do. And we act as if somehow we're God and we have control of our destiny and we do not. And that was illustrated to me again yesterday in a Little League game. I don't know if anybody else is learning anything, but God is teaching me a whole bunch. We're winning the whole game. It's the bottom of the sixth, which is all the innings that we play. We're up by four runs. We give up a couple. That's no big deal. I tell them, go to first, go to first, because the runner on third is not going to hurt us. So we get a couple of outs. And it's first and third, and we're winning by two. There's two outs. Oh and two. No balls, two strikes to the batter that's up. We are one pitch away from a big, big win. I'm excited. <laughs> but not real excited. Because I know God's trying to teach me something again. <laughs> and I'm learning a lot more through losses than through victory. <laughs> but it's 0-2. You figure, hey, 0-2, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, let's go. You know, a guy in third can't hurt you. A guy in first, just a tying run. I mean, what can hurt you? A home run, right? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, man, I'll tell you what. And then, well, that can hurt you, and then your wife who second-guesses you, every coaching move hurts you, and then the, then the coaches, coaches who hurt you, and then the kids are going, man, you know he was losing his stuff. Why didn't you bring in a relief pitcher for one lousy pitch? And uh, all those things kind of run through your mind there. <laughs> Not that I'm thinking about it anymore today, but you learn lessons. But you know what's great, too? You know what else God taught me? It's never over till it's over. Now I was looking around for that fat lady to start singing, and she, she just wasn't around. And, but you know what's exciting, though? It's never over till it's over. And if you've been proud of who you think you are, 
And Gad says, you know what's exciting? Today, you can realize who you really are. You think you've been a failure. You think you've screwed up a marriage. You think you've screwed up your family. You think you've made a lot of mistakes business-wise. You think you've treated people bad. You know what's so exciting? It's never over until you're dust and ashes, and you've got to stand before the Lord. And today is a day that you can start all over again. That's what's exciting to me about knowing that it's never over until it's over. God is a God of second chance. Man, that's exciting. There's nothing more exciting about that. He says, you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse you from all that unrighteousness, and today you can start all over again no matter where you're at. That's a great, great God, and that's exciting news. Because it is. It's never over until it's over. God always is trying to get your attention. Jacob defined it a whole different way. I like how Jacob defined it. He said, you know what Jacob said? He defined humility as a willing disclosure of God as your benefactor. He said, Jacob prayed, O God, my father Abraham, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. If you want to read something exciting, read Genesis 32. And you can realize what the story basically is this. Twenty years before he said this, he ran away from his brother Esau because he feared for his life. And you know what he slept on the night that he ran away? He slept on a rock. He used a rock as his pillow. He took nothing with him. This guy had nothing when he left. Twenty years later, he's coming back to meet his brother, and he's a wealthy man. And in fact, if you read chapter 32, you'll see all the presents he sent presents for his brother because he thought his brother still wanted to kill him. And he sent presents one after another. He sent presents one after another. All night long while he slept, his servants took presents to his brother. This man is a wealthy man. And you know what he said? He goes, hey, I'm not ashamed to admit it. When I left, I had nothing. I slept with my head on a rock. And now God has blessed me. And it's only because he did it that I have anything. It's like the person that comes across country with a U-Haul and owing people money. And now God has blessed them. And He's given them a job and He's given them a place to live and He's given them a bank account. And he's given them things. He's blessed them materially to say, you know why I've been blessed? Because I took the chance and I took the risk and I moved and I went to school and I worked hard and I did all the things that I needed to do and that's why I got what I got. Hey, hey man, you are messed up. You got what you got because God chose to give it to you. And Jacob wasn't ashamed to admit it. Men and women, I don't know what it's going to take for you to understand there are people who have worked a lot harder than you do and don't have anything materially. There are people who went to school and they're a lot smarter than you are who don't have anything materially. And it's only because God chooses to do what He wants to do for His own purposes and His own glory. And you got what you have because God decided to give it to you and trust you with it and test you to see if you know how to handle it. That's the only reason you got what you got. See, Jacob's exciting. Because he realized that. He's not, hey man, I did all the right things, I made all the right moves, I worked hard, I did this, I did that. Hey, I slept on a rock when I left and you blessed me tremendously and I don't even know why you did it. But I'll tell you one thing, I know this, that I'm going to go around telling everybody that you're the one who did it. See, humility. Doesn't it take humility when someone, to, someone says to you, nice house, nice this, nice that. Doesn't it take humility to say, you know what, we've been blessed. God has blessed us. And the only reason I can think of He's blessed me is because He gives me an opportunity right now just to thank Him for everything that He did in front of you and just tell you what a great God that we have and how He loves me and He loves you too. It takes humility to do that, doesn't it? Yes, it does. But that's how Jacob defined it. He said, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna, anytime I get a chance, I'm going to let people know what a great God that, that I, I, I report to every day. 
Moses. I like Moses. Moses, he, re, he defined humility as a personal insufficiency to accomplish his mission. God asked Moses, he said, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to lead these people out of here. Get them out of Egypt. Moses said, you've got to be kidding me. Me? He said, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But you know what Moses said? Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. You have got to be kidding me. Don't you know who I am? It's a fascinating story. Moses spent 40 years, the first 40 years of his life, in Pharaoh's court. He was educated. He was raised in the house of Pharaoh. He was a wealthy man. But he stood up for the people of Israel one time when an Israelite got in a fight, stood up for him, and he killed a man in self-defense for the person that was being oppressed. What happened was he ran away into the wilderness. For 40 years, he tended sheep. 40 years. Then God comes to him in the wilderness, Moses tending sheep. He says, hey, Moses, I got a job for you. I want you to go to Egypt, and I want you to lead these people out. Moses said, excuse me, sir, but don't you see what I'm doing? I'm tending sheep. I'm not hot on people. Give me a flock, and I'll lead it anywhere. But don't tell me I'm going to, Israel, I'm going to go to Egypt and lead your people out of here. Now, what exactly am I going to say when I get there? Uh, excuse me, Pharaoh. I've been sent to take all of God's people out of, out of Egypt. I don't think you'll mind since you've been using them as cheap labor. And uh, they're building everything that we see around here. And there's two million of them. And uh, I'm sure that you wouldn't mind losing your labor force. <laughs> so I don't see a problem. Do you see a problem? Okay, well, it's good seeing you. Let's go. Let's get out of here before he thinks about it. Well, he knew better than that. They're not going to let him go. And so he was smart enough to say, excuse me, oh, God, I can't do this. Why are you choosing me? You know why I chose him? Because he knew he couldn't do it on his own. You follow that? You know what the most incredible thing is? God has you where he has you because he wants you there. And for the most part, many of us are where we're at because we know we shouldn't be there. If you really admit it, no one else around. Say, man, I don't know why I'm in the position I'm in. I don't have a clue. I'll tell you what, I need all God's help I can get. And that's what he told him. He said, hey, look, I'll be with you. There we go. That's all you need to know. I'll be with you. I like what one man said. He said, set out to accomplish tasks that without divine intervention, without God's help, they are doomed to fail. Set out to accomplish a task that without God's help, they're doomed to fail. You know why? Because when it happens, you know you didn't do it. And then what you have to do is, you've got to give God all the credit for it. Interesting, isn't it? You know what our problem is? That we set our sights too low. We set them to our level of sufficiency. We set our goals to where we can accomplish it. Instead of setting it beyond our reach to without God's help, it's impossible. We're short-sighted people. And that's why God has been limited to work through His people. Because we are content to set our goals according to our sufficiency and not according to His greatness. He says, set your vision higher because then I'll have to jump in and help you with it and then you'll realize that it only happened because I'm involved. So he says to do. That's what Moses figured out. He said, hey, I'm not sufficient. God said, because you know you're not sufficient, you're sufficient. I'm going to do it. I'm going to use you. And the story was he did use them and they got out of there. Joshua, another great leader, took over for Moses. 
says that he saw defined humility as an honest transparency of your dependence upon God. A person that says, you know what, man, I'll tell you what, I'm leaning, but I'm leaning on the Lord. Everyone's leaning on something. It drives me crazy. People say, Christianity is a crutch. You're leaning, you just lean on the Lord. Yeah, well, what are you leaning on? A couple martinis after work? Your bank account? The car you drive? The business you have? Your spouse? Your kids? What are you leaning on? Everybody's leaning on something. So don't come off to me and say, I'm leaning on the Lord. You better believe I'm leaning on the Lord. And the only time I'll really find out if I truly am is when he takes all the rest of these things out from underneath me to see how I'm going to fall. Leaning on your job? Oh, I think I'll remove it from you so you can see that you really are. Leaning on money? Let me take money out of your life because it's obvious you're trusting in money instead of me. Leaning on your spouse? Maybe I'll have to call her or him home to be with me so you can see how much you're really dependent on them. You need to depend on me. And so what happened was Joshua figured it out real quick that as soon as I stopped leaning on the Lord, we're in big trouble. They went into Jericho before this, and they marched around the wall. God said, march around the wall seven times, and I'll deliver the city of Jericho in your hands. Blow the trumpet, the walls will fall down. They did it. And it worked. So the next city they got to was a city called Ai, and they said, hey, man, just send out a handful of people. We'll all stay back here and party and celebrate over knocking off Jericho, and we'll just send out a couple of people because we're pretty awesome dudes. We blew a horn and a wall fell down. Shoot, if I send out six guys with some swords and stuff, we'll really kick some butt. That's what he said. So Joshua tore his clothes. You know why? Because they got their butts kicked. They went out there saying, I'll kick some butt. And they got, man, they got their butt kicked. They came back and Joshua tore his clothes, fell down on his face before the Lord and said, hey, what's going on here? Why did we lose? Hey, you know why you lost? Because you started to trust in yourself. I had to teach you a lesson. Humble yourselves and I'll exalt you. Trust me. Depend on me and I'll lift you up. I like what Job, how Job defined humility. Job defined humility as an awesome opinion of an almighty God. Job... Wonderful guy. Guy had a diverse portfolio. Guy wasn't subject to any economic downturns. He was into agriculture. He was into real estate. He was into import, exporting. He was into all kind of stuff. I mean, he had a diverse portfolio. And he lost it all. He lost all of it. And look what he said. At the end of chapter four, at the beginning of chapter 42, after all this happened, he lost everything. He lost his family. He lost all his material possessions. And he and three friends tried to figure out why he lost it all. So there's some dialogue throughout the whole book about why he lost it all. Hey, man, you sinned. God's teaching a lesson. Hey, man, you were too proud. God humbled you. Hey, man, you know what? You should have did this and you didn't do that. Hey, man, you should have brought in a relief pitcher in the bottom of the sixth when you had two strikes on the kid. And, and, and you didn't do it. Hey, man, you know, it's just kind of like... You know, and, and, he, and that's it. But you know what he decided? Look what he said. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you, God, can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Talking to Job. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know what he said? He said, when God did what he did in my life, I questioned him. And there are people I meet every day that say, when I see God, he's got a few questions he's going to have to answer as far as I'm concerned. Oh, really? I, I hope that he lets me sit in on this one. Because that will be a fun one to see. And you know what? People are like that. It's like, hey, God owes me an explanation. Really? How do you figure that? I like what Job said. 
He says, you know what? My ears heard of you. That's typical church people. Typical church people. Oh, man, I heard that story before. Oh, he's doing this one again? Job, yeah, I know Job. I heard that one before. Oh, yeah, oh, we're going through this series again? Oh, I've done that one before. I grew up in the church, you know. I know everything. Oh, really? He says, I heard of you. Oh, yeah, I heard all this stuff. You know what, though? But there was a, t there was a time in Job's life where God became very personal to him. Oh, man, I heard all this stuff before, but I never included him in my life. He says, but you know what? But now my eyes have seen you. My eyes have seen you. And when you see God, then you realize who you are in light of Him. we got an awesome God. Isaiah went before the presence of God, and when he saw Him, he, he dove on his face and said, Woe is me, I'm an unclean man. The presence of God. Moses went into the presence of God and he came off of Mount Sinai and his face was glowing from the radiance and the glory of God. It's incredible. You know what he said? Man, I, I, we got an awesome God. You know what Job said about God? God can do anything he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. That's what I've discovered in my life. How about you? We met a gal last summer. We were up in Seattle, Washington and her husband had been the president of McDonnell Douglas and was involved in the early 70s, in the late 60s, early 70s actually, in the space program, and was kind of sharing with us all the little inner workings of what was going on during the Apollo missions. And I love what she had to say because James Irwin, who was a colonel on the first expedition, was a good friend of theirs. And this is what he had to say when he was addressing the National Religious Broadcasters Convention several years ago. This is what he said to the people that were there. He was speaking to this group, and he mentioned watching Earthrise one day and thinking how privileged he was to be a member of that unique crew. And then he began to realize en route back home that many would consider him a superstar, for sure, an international celebrity. He was humbled by the awesome goodness of God. Colonel Irwin shared his true feelings, which went something like this. It says, as I was returning to Earth, I realized that I was a servant and not a celebrity. So I am here as God's servant on planet Earth, to share what I have experienced that others might know the glory of God. That's some good stuff. So you know what humility is? Humility is to be able to go around telling people, we got an awesome God. We got an awesome God. You may have heard of Him, but when you see Him, and when you spend time with Him, and when you begin to realize who He is, then He becomes very real. And you know what can't, but what always has to happen is this. You know what? Therefore, because I was in His presence, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes because it's pretty obvious I thought a little too highly of myself. And God, you're still the boss. That's some good stuff. Jeremiah, the last two guys, Jeremiah defined it as a healthy respect for the wisdom of experience. Boy, I'll tell you what. There's nothing that will indicate a proud person quicker than a person who knows everything and can't be taught anything. They know it all. Man, it drives me crazy, especially when you're dealing with little kids and you're trying to teach them how to play baseball. They know everything. Why? Because they watch TV. And they see. They, I mean, they know how to step up there and know how to scratch and spit and chew. And, and, and they know how to dig in at the plate and they know how to call time out like this and they know how to do all this stuff, but they don't know how to bend over and keep their glove on the ground to catch a ground ball so it doesn't go through their legs. But they know everything. Isn't it nice that we grow out of that phase of our life? 
Isn't that great? Man, I'll tell you what, how many people do you meet that know everything? You can't tell them anything in business because they know it all. They've been there. Oh, yeah, we tried that in 1957. Did you? Didn't work then. Won't work today. Great. What makes you think so? I know everything. That's what they're saying. And the problem is that, you know what, God's people can't be like that. Let me tell you something. The more I study this, the more I realize I don't know anything. <laughs> I don't know anything. I'm just figuring it out as I go along and keep on figuring it out, figuring it out, trying to figure it out, figure it out. I love a young guy who's a preacher. He knows everything when he first comes out of seminary. After 45, 50 years of preaching and studying the Word and being around people and understanding all the things, he just knows the foundational truths are, never change. But all the rest of the things he thought he knew, he didn't know. You know why? Because if you and I can figure out this awesome God that we have, he wouldn't be much of a God after all. Stop and think about it. I don't want to insult your intelligence, but if you, Matt, can figure out God, then we're all in big trouble. Right? <laughs> It's the truth. It's the way it is. For all of us. I don't care. How, I mean, who's the sharpest person in here? Raise their hand. <laughs> Tom, I knew it. Tom, I knew it had to be you. Why, is it, why did it have to be you? Boy, we're sure glad we're doing this thing on humility, huh? <laughs> but you, know, you know what Jeremiah said? He said, man, let me tell you something. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah says, oh, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. What do you say to a God who created you and said, hey, I know exactly what i got planned for your life. I know exactly why I created you and what you're going to do here and where it's all going to go. It's like, hey, tell me. I'm just glad to be part of the program. And the last thing and probably the most difficult thing in defining humility was defined by Daniel who said that Humility is a strong rejection of unwarranted acclaim. A strong rejection of unwarranted acclaim. If you remember the story, there was a problem, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar was having dreams, and he couldn't figure out what was going on in this particular case. And uh, so God told Daniel what the scoop was. He said, hey, man, I'll tell you everything about it. You go tell him. So Daniel said, hey, as you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mystery showed you what is going to happen. The king was dreaming, and God let him see a picture of the future. He said, okay, I want you to see what's going to happen in the future. He says, as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than any other living man, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. God allowed him a glimpse to the future and said, hey, I'm going to show you what's going to happen. Now you need to figure it out, and the king couldn't figure it out. So he sent for all his wise men and all the guys that he had in his council and said, tell me what happened. Here's my dream. Tell me what the dream's all about. And they couldn't figure it out. They didn't know what was going to happen. So he told Daniel. He said, God told Daniel, Daniel, here's what the dream's all about. Go tell the king. So Daniel had an opportunity then. He said, hey, man, you had all the wisest guys that you know and your council come and they couldn't do it. I can do it. I'm a pretty sharp guy. He said, hey, I just want to get something straight right from the beginning. I don't know anything but what God told me, and here's the, here's the scoop. This is what's going on. And the only reason that he wanted me to tell you is so that you can understand what's going to happen in the future. Not so you can exalt me, not so you can give me a raise or a promotion, not so you can think I'm big time and I'm, I'm a pretty sharp guy. No, none of those things. He just told me this to tell you so that you would then be able to understand the future. One of the hardest things for us to do as, as men and women is to, in a nice way, thank a person who gives us praise, but to make sure that they're not putting us on the pedestal 
that only belongs for God Himself. Because I'll tell you what, and people don't like that. People don't like that at all. If you, if you say to somebody, somebody says to you, man, you know, why is your business so successful? And you say, oh, man, I'll tell you what. I've been trying to figure it out myself. I mean, there are some things that I'm doing. If I can share with you and help you, I'll be glad to share those things with you. But the truth of the matter is, the only reason I have any success is because God's blessed me. So it's not because I'm sharp. It's because God is good. And, man, as soon as you say that, they don't want to hear it. It's like having an athlete try to give praise to God on, on the air or whatever, and you see him go, hey, well, that's great. Hey, let's bring this to your brother. Hey, come on up here. Get down here. Start bringing God into this. What do you think God has to do with it? Gee, I don't know. He made me, and, and I'm here, and, and uh, it's just like, I don't know. The only reason I'm here is because he created us. So I thought he had a little bit of something to do with all this, and that's the way it works. Let me close with this. I like what Helen Keller said. She said, there is no king who has not had a slave among his ancestors and no slave who has not had a king among his. And I want to I read something to you that kind of really hits home. Got it in a newsletter that came out. It's about the, de and it's, uh, the Declaration of Independence. And I'll just read one paragraph to you because it all ties together. It really makes some sense when you think about what we're talking about because there's a lot of us who really think that we're something special. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Obvious to all. Obvious to all. And the only time it's not is when we try to ignore it. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That all men are created. All men are created equal, and they're endowed by their Creator. You want to define humility? I'll tell you what. These seven men had a good handle on what humility was all about, and it begins with understanding that all of us, regardless of race, economics, position, company, address, what we're driving, what we're wearing, what we're doing, that all of us were created by God. Which means, if we are created by Him, then that means that He takes preeminence in our life. He made us. He's responsible for us. And He's the boss. And there'll never ever be anybody that's going to take His place. That's what humility is all about. Recognizing that simple fact and then living it and demonstrating it in the way we treat one another. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to clearly see what you say humility is all about. To see that you are God, that you've created us, and that you've created all of us equal. And if we're to boast of anything, you tell us to boast in Jesus Christ. Because it is through Him that we become special in your sight. God, we just thank you for that. Help us to understand it as we go about our daily lives, as we, as we continually are, are subjected to teaching that tells us to be over another person. But you tell us to serve and to give and left that example for us. May we all be servants as we leave here today. Servants and not superstars. And as we serve one another, may people clearly see Jesus Christ in our lives. And we just thank you and give you all the praise and all the glory because we now understand that you can do whatever you want to do 
whenever you want to do it for your purposes and for your glory. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.